0: You know, divisions in the church are, like, so divisive, right? Some estimate there are over 45,000 different Christian denominations in the world today. Would you have guessed it was that high? Could you name even 45? No. I was a little surprised in that research. Forty-five thousand. This chart only shows the families of many of those denominational splits. If you were one of the most famous, is there kind of in the center? Uh, occurred on July sixteenth of ten fifty-four, over a thousand years ago, when the patriarch of Constantinople, Michael Cerularius, was excommunicated by the church based in Rome, and resulted in a church split that divided the European. What's going on here? We're supposed to be in slide mode. There we go. Now behave. Just behave. All right. Uh, Resulted in a split that divided the European Christian church into two major branches, the Western Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. The Eastern Church retaliated in return by doing what? Excommunicating the Pope. So there. (laughs) A tit for tat. Here we go. We have a fight. It was Roman Pope Leo III and the entire Roman church with him. They just excommunicated the church. Like they had some authority to do that, I guess. I don't know. This split was known as the Great Schism of 1054. The Great Schism came about due to a complex mix of religious and political disagreements. Now, where did that come into the picture, right? Some of the many religious disagreements between the two, Western and Eastern, where the Roman and the Byzantine, if you've heard those words names before, um, had to do with whether or not it was acceptable to use, you ready for this? Unleavened bread in the Lord's Supper. Watch out. (laughs) That was a divisive issue, okay? The West supported the practice while the East did not. Other technicalities on the Trinity, that's an age-old argument, and the exact wording of the Nicene Creed, (laughs) okay? The Western belief also that clerics should remain celibate, okay? There's probably a couple things there worth fighting for, but this was the big deal in 1054, and it caused such a stir. Today, the Roman Catholic Church has over 1.3 billion followers, and the Eastern Orthodox, a little over a quarter a quarter of a billion. And more. that was all, like I said, over a thousand years ago. And uh, they're still not reconciled. Imagine that. Um, they just have not come together. Of course, our own position as a church would come out of this mix. And really, it would come out of the Roman side of it because of the Reformation in the 1500s. Um, that's really where our roots come from with more of the, the Calvinism, Lutheran, Anglican, or the that, that era, okay? Uh, we're not from the Eastern Orthodox side. Now, while there's 45,000 denominations, uh, that doesn't sound good, does it? Um, <clears throat> perhaps not all splits are bad, however, all right? And that's kind of a point we need to talk about here. Um, it can be good if we get back to the right standard, correct? I mean... You'd want to split from error, figuratively, and but that begs the question: What is the right standard? Well, for Paul, he knew it was the direct revelation of Jesus Christ and his written word, and that's what's been preserved for us today. So, yes, divisions are divisive, as uh, uh, goes without saying. But there are several things that we are studying here in the book of First Corinthians that point to the the fact that the church was heavily divided and we realized that from the readings we've already had that the Corinthian church had become divided and morally and uh, spiritually compromised in many areas of which the letter will still continue to unravel for us, another at least nine areas. Uh, The fundamental cause of that though was their own carnality which we covered earlier. That root Manifestation of these schisms, however, was their boasting of and among men. So the carnality was the root cause. They were living fleshly, thinking fleshly. They weren't thinking godly. And that resulted in their taking up boasts and causing divisions in that regard. And then their boasting was rooted in the fact that they were using the wisdom of men and the esteem of men rather than the esteem of God and the boast in Christ. Next, we also have learned and read that the grace of God is the believer's means to glory, not the boasts of men to glory. The world wants to find glory in its own boasting and its own pride, but the power of the gospel is the means to salvation and not men's. All right, so the power doesn't come from eloquence of speech, it doesn't come from perfect exposition, it doesn't come from those things. It comes because the Holy Spirit is working on an individual in response to hearing the word of God. And the wisdom of God is the believer's means to bearing witness of that gospel. These are just some of the high-level things we've seen. Also, the solution to schisms in the church is unity in the word and agreement in mind. We heard that from chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. And, by God's grace, we have, as believers, the mind of Christ by the spirit and thus it's actually possible that there could be unity in a church Uh, you know if you have 45 people in a church you could have 45 different opinions but the point is what are we focused in on as what brings about that agreement and that has to do with the word and being an agreement with the leadership of the church as we've already discussed So we must also have a unity around what the purpose of the church is, and that is the mission of the gospel and the spread of evangelism. Now, in today's passage, 1 Corinthians 4, if you'll go ahead and open there together, Paul is admonishing the Corinthian church, which has become divided and fallen into this gross error, and he wants to nurture them to have new mindsets to bring about and maintain the unity in the church. He was asking them to split from their bad ideas and get back to the core. So I'm going to read briefly the chapter 4 in its entirety. Now let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God, mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one another, one against the other. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? you're already filled you have already become rich you have become kings without us and indeed I wish that we had become you had become kings so that we might also reign with you that's supposed to be some sarcasm there on purpose that's what Paul's doing for I think God has exhibited the apostles us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men we are fools for Christ's sake but you are prudent in Christ another butt of sarcasm coming here we are weak, oh, but you are strong, you are distinguished, we, we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless, and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world and the dregs of all things, even until now." I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everyone teach everywhere in every church now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills and I will find out not the words of those who are arrogant but their power for the kingdom of God does not consist of words but in power what do you desire shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness let's pray Father, help us to grasp what's going on here in this chapter from Paul that we might apply it to our own lives and to our church. There's so many twists and turns and different tones of voice and things going on. Lord, just we ask that your Spirit guide us, that we might understand the truth of what you have in store here for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the theme of today's passage is that believers are to adopt Christ-like mindsets that nurture unity within the local church and prevent divisions. Now, Paul gives us 12 mindsets in three different categories. First group is that towards leaders, mindsets we're to have toward leaders. Another group is the mindset we're supposed to have towards ourselves or oneself. And the third is to have a mindset of mindsets towards the church community. And the first mindset that we're to adapt is that we are to have a mindset by regard of regarding leaders as fellow servants, not idols. And this is really gets down to the core of what was going on in the church at that time. They had elevated their pastors uh, above status that is proper. So the be regarded is to be reckoned. You're supposed to logically just decide specifically that your pastors and leaders are just fellow servants. As we read, and I just went ahead and skipped, we'd already read it, but let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. Now, the word servants here means under rower, one who rows according to the direction of somebody else's direction. They're not there to steer the boat themselves, they're not there to take control, they're there to serve in the purpose of what the boat is doing, in this case what the church and the mission is supposed to be doing. And he says, regard us in this manner. Paul is pointing out a very specific thing that's happening in the church here because he's speaking about, as we have already covered a little bit, the I am of Apollos, I am of Paul, I am Cephas. They were specifically taking up uh, pride of their personal pastors or their teachers or people they were most impressed with. uh, Impressed with. Either because either Paul was first, for example, he helped plant the church, or because uh, Apollos was perhaps a more eloquent speaker, because Paul already admitted he was not one of eloquent speech, or perhaps that because Cephas was involved and he was one of the original 12, and of that he was the chief apostle amongst the 12. but Paul says no. You're not to be looking at your leaders that way as though they are some special thing that you need to be proud about, okay? It's not that we aren't to be grateful and encouraging and honor our elders, as we'll get to in a moment, but you're not to make a split over it. This is just not appropriate. We're to reckon them as fellow servants in Christ. He's deliberately putting everybody on the same playing field in the same game for the same purpose that is to glorify God and work as a team. He continues to say, reckon us as stewards of the mysteries of God. We have a mission in what we are embodying here in the body of Christ. Here the word stewards here is emphasizing he's confronting their attitudes of arrogance. The word stewards here means house inspector. Okay? One that's responsible for some aspect of running a house, not even necessarily the whole thing. A low-ranking person with nothing special in the scheme of things other than to make sure something gets done. A slave. That's what Paul is trying to say. Reckon us as stewards of what? What are we responsible for? It's the mysteries of God. Now, the word mysteries here means the divine order of some religious cult in its generic term. Specifically, it's the things that God has revealed so far in his word, through his prophets, through the apostles, through Christ, right? And also those things that are still yet to be complete. Now, at the time of this writing, of course, the book of Revelation hadn't been written yet. And so those were just some of the things that these pastors and these, these apostles were responsible for. And as teachers over the ages are also responsible for to make sure that they are presented correctly. But it is a service, It is not a pedestal, and they had taken this too far. Pastors and teachers simply then are entrusted with explaining what has been revealed by God or what is to be. They're not to create new words from God. They're not to be making things up, as some do, with their eisegesis instead of their exegesis. They're simply messengers. And we are reminded in Ephesians 4, starting with verse 11, it says, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers, for what? The equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until, just a few people, until we all attain to the unity, it's a key word that we've been studying, the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of what, some elevated man? Y'all, you know, Anybody know the verse? What is it that we're being grown to be? To the fullness and the measure and the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Wow, that's a pretty high calling, isn't it? Wow. As already mentioned in chapter 3, verse 16 of 1 Corinthians we are the temple of God, and as Paul pointed out to us, that is the body of Christ, meaning the church. Uh, we are the body that works together, and back in Ephesians 4 again, starting in verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from which the whole body being fitted together and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part. Causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Kind of get the feeling there's a team Jesus going on here, right? This is to be working together. We are not to be elevating others or being proud of them in a way that causes divisions. Instead of being some boast among men, Paul says that pastors are to be regarded or respected as fellow servants of someone else, namely the leader, Jesus Christ. This is also echoed in other places in the Gospels. For example, Mark 10.45, Jesus was saying, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Likewise, in Luke 22, But it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you, you must become like the youngest and the leader like a servant. Christ flipped everything on its head regarding greatness. This is exactly what we've been reading in earlier chapters of 1 Corinthians. Remember the wisdom of men is, the foolish, is foolishness before God. The gospel of God appears as foolishness to the world. God has completely flipped all of this upside down from the sinful, proud heart of men. And it constitutes a great mystery, really, doesn't it? It's one of those mysteries of God to see things differently and to see it from his perspective. And the only way this is reconciled, this flipping around of things, is because of the work of the Holy Spirit working in each person's life. It's the only way that makes sense, doesn't it? Because we are bombarded, we are surrounded in this world by all these temptations and these claims of greatness. And you know, as good as great athletes are, it's amazing to see what they do with all their hard work. But you know what? We're not here for that. It might be what we need to do personally. But do we? Are we to worship them? Is it something that's worth giving our lives up for? No. You know there are people who bet millions of dollars on sports outcomes. I said, really? Who does that? Not me. I, I don't have that kind of money. But <laughs> And maybe it's a good thing I don't. Right? It would be another temptation. We're here really to serve the mysteries of God, to steward those uh, of people that are coming to faith and that are growing in the faith. Now, perhaps some in the church saw the, the revealing of the mysteries of God and they said, oh, that was so profound. This teacher taught me so much. Oh, that's the person I'm going to follow. That's the name I'm going to stand behind. That's the kind of thing that was happening here in Corinth, and it's just not right. We're to recognize these, are, these mysteries are from the foundation of the world. They're not new. Right? They're not new. It's, we're new to it. Right? So we're still back on the same level playing field. We're just here to serve a purpose Certainly not something worth creating a division for. So there we are to regard our leaders as fellow servants and not idols. Secondly, we are also to adopt a mindset of primarily focusing on the trustworthiness of a leader, not their popularity. Now, In verse 2 it says, In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Now the word required here has many nuances here, but it really means the required qualifications. The demand that the master has set to fill that spot. There can be many reasons one pastor may be more effective or likable than another, or teacher, pastor, teachers, whoever's leading. Uh, But Paul reminds us that the fundamental requirement here is that they be found trustworthy. Now, the word trustworthy comes from the Greek word pistis. You've probably heard this if you've been in church more than a few years somewhere. That word has come up. Because the English translation of that is the idea of trust, belief, and faith. They're all the same in their root idea. okay? And I I think it's pretty easy to see that connection, right? To, To place your trust in something means that you're believing in it or that you have faith in it. But the root idea here is to trust something. And so the steward is to be found... The the leader is to be found trustworthy. That's really the core element of what we're supposed to be discerning about leadership. They're to be believable, if you will. Are they the true thing? Are they genuine? Can they be uh, responsible? Are they true to the word? They don't add to it, for example, would be some ideas. Now, if we take a moment just to step back to Genesis three, you can see how this is so fundamentally part of the first sin. It was what was it that happened there? God said, "There's His word. Don't do this. Don't take from the tree of good and evil or the tree of life." And so, what did Adam and Eve do? Did they trust that word? Did they believe God in that word? No. They actually did their own thing and they they did not have faith in God's word. That the, the pistis is the root of all three of those English translations. Likewise, we can see in the gospel that that has to be restored. And what is it that we are asked to do? We are to repent and believe. God said, "My son is sufficient for your salvation." Do you trust that? You see, the same idea, it's getting back to the very core sin that started all the downfall in the first place is that we are to be trustworthy. And it's important that leaders be trustworthy because they are setting the tone for those that they minister to. We are to trust the gospel, which is the good word, that Jesus' death on the cross is fully sufficient and the only way in which one can be redeemed. There is no boast in anything other than the cross and Christ himself, which we've already heard in 1 Corinthians as well. So we are to be focusing on the trustworthiness of a person, not their popularity. Thirdly, we are also to be leaving the final judgment of others to God, not men. As we read in verse 3, but to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any other court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Now, the very small thing here is the word micron. Okay. So it's a very small thing. And to be examined means to be interrogated. Okay. Uh, interrogate me. He says, it doesn't bother me. I'm, I'm not worried about that. And it, the Idea of human court here is a human day. The context here it means a judicial court. It's just the word that, that was being used in the Greek. Now, we're first to find that they are trustworthy, and so but Paul's statement here begs the question: Is well, how are you going to know somebody's trustworthy? You're probably going to examine them, right? And he says, "Come at me, try me. It's a small thing." But Paul didn't just say that because he actually was good at what he, of who he was. He did that because he also didn't want to have any form of compromise in his life. He was willing to take the introspection by others. Paul was not intimidated here, not even by the courts. Uh, he knew that his examiner truly was the Lord. And if any human can help him find that, then he could walk a cleaner life before the Lord. And how do we know this? Well, he has written in other places, For example, in Acts 24 verse 16, when he's standing before the high priest in Jerusalem, having gone back to Jerusalem and got arrested, um, he says, "In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before both before God and before men. That was an actual mindset of his to actually keep a clear conscience, okay? but just because Paul lived to have a clear conscience doesn't mean that he was a perfect individual. Okay, let's make sure we understand. Don't turn off your lap machine here. There we go. Um, Just because he had a clear conscience uh, didn't really mean that he was a perfect person. As we read in Acts 23, verse 1, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Now wait a minute. What was Paul doing before the road to Damascus? Was that the right thing to do? Did he have a clear conscience about it? Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was convinced that he was doing the right thing for God. But he was wrong. Okay? So he was not necessarily doing the right thing and so we're going to get to why this is important all right so let's look back at verse 20 uh, chapter 23 verse 1 in Acts I've lived with a clear conscience up to God this day the high priest Annas commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth then Paul said to him God is going to strike you you whitewashed wall don't try to sit and try to don't try me according to the law and in violation of the law ordering me to be struck he, he, he voiced his anger inside of the courtroom. But the bystanders said, do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, ooh, I was not aware, brethren, that he was a high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. So what's going on here is that Paul is not a perfect person, but he has a clear conscience. And it, but it's not because he lives a lie, it's because he's, he corrects what's going wrong in his life as soon as he sees it. And that's how, on a daily basis, the conscience can remain clear. He repented whenever he failed. He sought to make things right, even if it meant he had to stand and be offended. Okay? Paul was one that tried to practice what he preached even before his salvation. But Paul now realized, being convicted that he was right about something doesn't mean it was necessarily so. As we look back at that, verse 3 Um, you know, the one who examines me, the Lord. But look at verse 4. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. What a beautiful phrase. Yet by this I am not, yet (laughs) I am not by this acquitted. He understood that even though he tried to live with a clear conscience, that wasn't the final verdict. He held that out to God. He says, you know, I really, I don't I can't even judge my own heart right. I don't have all truth. I don't know everything. Now, the Corinthians were convinced in their own minds that they were right in exalting themselves and their chosen leaders. What they failed to demonstrate was a situation, a submission to the Lord's ultimate say in the matter. They had gone off on their own. Therefore, Paul admonishes them not to think, so highly of their judgmental convictions. Now back in verse 3, Paul said, I do not even examine myself. So let's explore that for a moment. Here he's not saying that he doesn't examine himself literally. He actually does that. He just did. Okay? I, I, don't, I don't want to say anything that I'm, I'm guilty of. I've got a clear conscience. That's an examination right there. Okay? He's, okay? he's thinking about it. What he's trying to say, I'm not conscious about it. Rather, he's demonstrating a submission to who really does have the final word as to Paul's character, and that's, that's the Lord. Yet I am not by this acquitted. Okay? To be conscious of something is to be aware of it. To be acquitted is to mean truly guiltless. The scriptures have a lot to say about the conscience, and it's worthy, worthy of a study on its own. I'll just give a couple of highlights. I found this a fascinating study many, many years ago. There are nine additional mentions just in the first letter the letters to corinthians i can't speak today in the letters of first and second corinthians there's at least nine more mentions of the conscience that we're going to come across but here's here's just a couple of bullets those who don't keep a clear conscience suffer shipwreck of their faith first timothy 1:19 second those who fall into the hypocrisy of liars end up searing their conscience that is to Cauterize it. That is to burn it and seal it shut. So the truth can't get in there anymore, that they can't hear the Spirit's conviction. Thirdly, only the blood of Christ can actually clear a conscience. We are born guilty, and as we mature, so to speak, we become more agonized by this or we're more aware of it. Uh, When we are confronted with the gospel, then it comes to light because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And we are forever guilty before God unless that conscience can be cleared and it can only be done by the blood of Christ. As we read in Hebrews 9, starting in verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who had been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. The blood of Christ has removed the actual true guilt of our sinful nature, so we will not be judged on Judgment Day. And the Holy Spirit continues to convict us. We need to have a tender conscience. We need to be sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit as we are working out our sanctification with the Lord having been saved. And where we fail, grace abounds all the more. What a comforting, comforting thought. Paul's point here is that while we are to be discerning in many things, we must hold our conclusions about ourselves with open hands to the Lord. Yet by this I am not acquitted. I need to continue to seek to live with a clear conscience. We are to leave that final judgment with others, uh, with the Lord. We can be wrong. Paul continues to develop this point in verse five um, of leaving the final judgment into God's hand by saying, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of man's heart and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, Paul has, has just put himself under examination by the people saying, look, um, leaders are to be trustworthy. I'm one of your leaders. Um, have at it. Have um, but I know that I'm not vindicated by my own clear conscience. By the way, you might be wrong too if you find something going on here. So be careful. He's saying be careful. Do not go on passing judgment before the time. But at a bigger scale and worse was that how the Corinthian church at this point, because they were becoming proud of who their teacher was or who their leader was, they were in essence passing judgment on everybody else in the church that didn't agree with them. That's not good either, right? That's not going to go well. Be it for their eloquence of speech or order of succession or profound resumes, you know, whatever that was. Well, Jesus spoke to me directly, you know, whatever they could have been hammering on. But if we can't properly judge ourselves even with a clear conscience, how can we properly judge others? But that's what was going on. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Just remember, if, if you don't see that something's right, there's a graceful way to handle things. If there is something that needs to be corrected, try to do something about it, but don't cause a split in the church about it. Remember, we already talked in the first part of uh, chapter one, the middle part of chapter one, We are to trust our elders to bring about the the clarification of issues that come up. They are godly men that are seeking, they are fallible men like the rest of us, but they are earnestly seeking to serve the Lord and his glory. And so we need to continue to to resolve those conflicts in the proper way in the church. Now, 1 Timothy 5 also reminds us that in verse 17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those that work hard at preaching and teaching. Paul's just being honest. He says, look, that's important. We can honor people. And he goes on in First Thess- Thessalonians 5, appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. Do that. But we should be giving honor to many people, not just leaders and teachers. We need to do so, give honor where honor is due. The problem is making a split over it. Stop that, he says. We can't even see our own motives well enough to vindicate ourselves, how much less we can see the motives of other people. The Holy Spirit's really the one working here, remember? In Hebrews 4.12, it says... The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is why the Lord has to be held as the final judge of other things. Now, our next group is to um, adopting mindsets toward ourselves. And the first one of these is that we are to uh, be living with scriptural bounds for behavior in the church and not exceeding them. Verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sake so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Now what is what was written? Did they have a New American Standard or an ESV at the time? no did they have revelation yet no did they have first and second timothy yet no <laughs> what was written the well the old testament true but what about what paul has just written in the first three chapters of corinthians all right you got it right in your <laughs> don't exceed what i've just written that's the primary thing to hear we look back at chapter 3 verse 6 through 9 Paul uses the farmer idea. What's his point here? He's trying to say that leaders are fellow servants who are not to be taken up proudful causes and causing divisions on behalf of anybody in that regard. And what's he say in verse 5? Yes, starting with verse 5 of chapter 3. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you've believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Okay, that's great. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. What are we supposed to be boasting in? The Lord. Now, he who plants and he whose waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. What, from men? From God. For we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field. So that's the first figurative speech that Paul is taking and applying to himself. I was just a laborer in the dirty field of sinful people giving out the gospel. That's just, that's all I am. Then starting in verse 10, he goes on to the builder figure. According to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder I laid a foundation and another is building on it but each man must be careful how he builds on it for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid which is Jesus Christ Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold silver precious stones wood hay and straw each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it has to be revealed it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive an award, a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. And we've already seen in the first five verses of this chapter the idea of being a servant, which we won't go back and repeat. He's just trying to set the tone here. He says, look, don't go beyond these examples Fellow servants, fellow laborers, common mission, we are to have a loving, grateful, humble sense of participation, supporting one another, not creating factions. From these examples, Paul has written what should be followed and that they should not exceed it. Now, the leaders of the Corinthian church um, had demonstrated humility, but the factions had, ex- uh, had exalted themselves. Um, I think I do need to share this example from numbers eleven twenty eight it 's one that i hadn't seen before, but if you may recall it 's when Moses and, and Joshua are out there and they're doing their thing to battle the enemies and whatnot and verse twenty four Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered seventy men of the elders of the people and stationed them around the, the tents. So now he's getting into this selection of 70 people in order to offload Moses' workload. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he took up of the Spirit who was upon him and placed him on the 70 elders. And when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not do it again. So it was just a brief moment as a, a, a confidence or a reassurance that, yes, God had affirmed these people. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad and the name of the other Medad. And the Spirit rested upon them. Now they were among those who had been registered but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Hear this. Now, then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. Moses said to them, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Then Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. Moses was doing exactly what the Corinthians were doing. Taken up an offense without really thinking about what God would have rather preferred. And he was jealous for somebody else's sake. So some of the the people in the Corinthian church were becoming proud or boastful or jealous about their leader or the other's leaders or doing whatever they were doing. They were causing these, these fractions. Joshua's loyalty to Moses was misplaced. And even when we do that to faithful men of God, inevitably it brings hostility to the others of God's servants. It causes envy, competition, and division. The next thing that we can take a look at here is that we adopt a mindset of recognizing that all you have is a gift and not something earned. We look here at verse 7. There's um, there's two I want to do together. And also by keeping an attitude of humility before God, not of boasting before men. Verse 7, for who regards you as a superior? Paraphrase this means, why do you think you're above others? That's kind of the intent that's coming out in that passage. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Now, if we're ultimately honest, everything we have, no matter how hard we work, comes back to the fact that God gave us breath to do it. We were given life. Our life has been preserved. The Lord in his providence has taken care of us. Everything we have is from the Lord. There is nothing that we can say that's mine as we studied earlier in 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9, I thank God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, with whom, uh, uh, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now what in there did they earn? Nothing. Nothing. And Paul is driving home the point here, you need to recognize that everything you has a gift, whether it be your leaders or your family or your food or whatever, it all is a gift by the graces of God and that we're to have a humility before him and not be boasting of men. Another mindset that we need to have is remembering our position in Christ, which I've just reread from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's not our position among men that is of any value. Sure, we climb corporate ladders and we get promoted and those kinds of things, but that's not not our destiny. That's not not worth causing a division. You know, one of the best shows I like is Dirty Jobs. Anybody ever seen Dirty Jobs? It just brings home, like, you know... We need to be respectful of other people that have to do these things. And we need not to, we should not promote ourselves or be so proud that we don't have to get our hands dirty. Maybe we do. It's work and we need to do it in the love of the Lord. But we are to remember our position in Christ can't be taken away from us. Isn't that great? What he's saying here in verse 8 now, which is our next mindset, um, you're, you're already filled, you have already become rich, you have become kings without us. Now, MacArthur, I think rightly points out that this is really a tone of sarcasm, what's going on, and so he gives us some words to, to rethink how this sounds. Oh, you're so great, you are so rich, and oh my, you have already become kings on your own. Wow, at least in your own minds, You have coronated yourselves with your own accomplishments. That's the tone of voice that is coming out across this. Now, indeed, they were rich in Christ, but Paul is stressing the point here that you're making something of it that shouldn't be there. Then Paul turns again to play against the insanity of their attitude and says, and indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. I was like, really? (laughs) People grow up. My goodness, you have attained such spiritual exaltation that I should wish I were part of your party instead of the Lord's? How ridiculous. So by adopting a humbler mindset and our position in Christ, we'll eventually lessen the temptation to be proud and arrogant among men. For Paul here, he spends now the next five verses reflecting on the next one. Um, that by reflecting on the suffering of your spiritual ancestry, not earthly prestige. Now here, Paul is basically saying, I want you to really know the real truth about what some people do for you to be able to have the faith, to keep in mind of the servanthood of these. And I'm going to run rather quickly through this. Basically, the idea here is they were... um, They thought they had everything in themselves, but Paul is trying to tell them that they have nothing in themselves. They're boasting of their great leaders, but they're failing to see the humility in their leaders. And so Paul deep dives to another extreme and gives them a reality check. For I think God has exhibited us as apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Now the word spectacle here is the idea of of uh, the picture of roman generals coming in from the battlefield traipsing through the the roads in rome to all the cheering crowds dragging their captured enemy behind them that they're now going to slaughter to show as a show off to the rest of the people well that's what paul's basically saying that we're we're being paraded we're being becoming the spectacle of the world in that you know we're condemned to death And we know that at least 10 of the original 12 were actually martyred. Paul was martyred. Apollos is uh, understood to be martyred. Is that really what you're trying to be all proud about? He goes on. um, let, Let me just make a quote from MacArthur. He says, "'The life of discipleship is the life of servanthood, "'and the life of servanthood is the life of humility.' a life that so intimidates the world that it stands in danger of death. The apostles were ridiculed, spit upon, imprisoned, beaten, mocked, and generally treated like criminals. That's the reality check. He goes on in verse 10, Paul. We are fools for Christ's sake. Oh, but you're prudent in Christ. We are weak. but Oh, you're strong and distinguished. But we are without honor. MacArthur renders this in the sarcasm eth- believes it to be you still really think of the gospel as foolish and its ministers as foolish you are ashamed of being christ's servant you want glory honor and worldly recognition paul continues in verse 11 to this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless we toil working with our hands we are reviled we bless when we are persecuted we endure when we are slandered we try to conciliate that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Toil here is to work to the point of exhaustion. Reviled is to be abused by words, insulted, trash-talked. Yet the, apostle, the apostles' response were the opposite. We work with our hands, we bless instead of curse, we endure without complaint, and we're seeking to resolve and conciliate. That is the model of Christ, who came to redeem to restore the relationship we have with God. That's what the apostles were doing, and that's the example they're trying to set for everybody else. But instead, we have become the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. And that's because the apostles didn't hold back from sharing the truth. You know, it's pretty easy to enjoy the benefits of the gospel, especially if we're not threatening Satan's domain, right? Many have paid that highest price and this is a price that we need to be mindful of that we don't take it for granted or become proud of it and misuse it. The third group is towards church community. We, have, we should have a mindset of respecting your spiritual heritage, not your earthly peers. Now if we go to verse 14 here, I do not write these things to shame you but to admonish you as my beloved children for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Admonish here is to literally put into mind, to make a plea he's not trying to destroy. He also says, beloved children. Another testimony that Paul is not trying to inflict pain. He's trying to inflict conviction by the work of the Holy Spirit. He's trying to show the tenderness of his heart as a spiritual father to him. There's no anger, there's no vengeance here. Is he upset? Yes. He's weeping within inside of himself. You know, this admonishment is biblically important. I mean, if we take a look at 1 Samuel 2-4, through 4, we see the example, I'm not going to read it, but of Eli and his sons. His sons were committing adultery right there at the gate of the temple, uh, misusing the women. They were stealing some of the food dedicated to God, it was just terrible. And Eli did not admonish them. And and for that reason, Eli and his family were destroyed. Paul here is using another figurative expression, if you will, that of being a father. So Paul is trying to basically say here, I don't want to leave anybody behind. The army didn't invent that phrase. Paul cares about his spiritual children, and we need to respect that for the people that have invested in our own lives and in the lives of those that we invest into. Another way, another mindset to adopt is by imitating the spiritual best. Verse 16, thereof I exhort you, be imitators of me. The word imitator means to mimic. Uh, Paul was in tune with trying to be the best walking christian that he could be we as already talked he wasn't perfect um, but he couldn't be there right now and he wanted to be able to be their example their role model and this is true about how a discipleship relationship should also transpire as much as possible is to continue to invest and in care for the people that we disciple and to care for those that have discipled us in verse 17, he says, For this reason I have sent you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord and who will remind you of all my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in the church. So Paul is saying, look, here's a, here's a cookie cutter of me. Um, I can't be there. I want you to see my example, but I'll send you my best sample. Timothy is one that does to what I teach, what is written, and we are in congruence with the way Christ is doing things. He was qualified to be a substitute. So we're running short on time here. But I I think we can all probably look back at people in our lives who have maybe gotten in our face and admonished us and challenged us and it hurt. But today we thank them. I can think of a few people and I so appreciate them. May we have the courage to do the same in other people. Another way that we are to have a mindset is by leaving margin for the humanity of others and not expecting perfection. As we look in verse 18, now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. (laughs) If it weren't bad enough to have a divided church already (laughs) because I didn't show up on time, you're causing another division. Now what's really going on here? Um... He got delayed, and we read about that in other parts of his, his letters. Verse 19, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. Paul was saying, I'll get there if I can, but it's not up to me. The ultimate calendar assistant that I have is the Lord, because I serve him. And if he says it's not a good idea, I won't be there. But I'm going to try, Lord willing. I will be there. And he says, then I'm going to kind of find out if people are just making a whole bunch of words and they're really not living by what is true. MacArthur says, faith that does not result in right living may have many words to support it, but it will not have any power. A person's true spiritual character is not determined by the impressiveness of their words, but by the power of their lives. Paul was going to do everything he could to stay within the, the character of what his Lord was to be a Christian, Christ-like person. And Lord willing, he was going to be there, but he served a higher master. And so we as people should not be the judge of other people's abilities to carry things out that could be they were interrupted and for good cause. Verse 20, For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. You know, the bar is set pretty high. Your divisions are against the very word of God. Stop it. And finally, we are to have a mindset of receiving the admonishment of elders, not ignoring it to our shame. Verse 21, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and the spirit of gentleness? Paul's desire is that the church would repent and he warned them that he would not spare if he came there and it was still the same. Now I have some good news for you. Okay. Jerome records that Apollos was so dissatisfied with the divisions at Corinth that he retired to Crete. And Zenus, good news is still coming. Sorry. And that once the schism had been healed by Paul's letters, Apollos returned to the city and became one of its elders. Adopting a mindset of embracing these admonitions from people that get in our face and try to correct us, we should embrace it. And even if they're wrong, how should we take it? Gratefully. Thank you for caring enough. And then we'll take that back to the Lord. Maybe we'll check it out, right? But be receiving of it. And that's how we will build unity in the church. Now, I've already shared many applications as we've gone through this, so I'll just summarize a couple of others. Basically, we are concluding chapters 1 through 4, which is basically one topic after the introduction. That is, the divisions are damning to the church, and they are destructive. First of all, schisms in the church are to be taken seriously and must be admonished. Whatever part we are in that, whether we need to be a part of of admonishing others, or we are to be a part of taking that admonishment, we are to come into agreement with who we are as a body of Christ and under our leadership. Now the leadership is to be regarded as fellow servants. We're in this boat together. We're all Roman rowers, I should say. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, and in the larger context of serving the gospel and the kingdom of God, Paul believed it was also possible to restore unity in the church. And as we see perhaps from Jerome, that actually happened. And that's something that happened because the Spirit of God was working on his people. But it took the admonishment through another leader to stir that up to work, right? So believers are also to adopt Christ-like mindsets that nurture unity within the local church. This This is a set of mindsets that we need to have because the devil will come in any way he can and try to cause a little bit of a, fra- uh, a division. We need to nip it in the bud, if we will. Leadership in the church. Um, I changed my notes here. So, I <laughs> Unified church has um, an understanding of the work we all do together for the gospel and the service to our Lord. It's a team effort in which the Lord is the one to be boasted about and exalted, not men. And with that, Here is a picture I think just captures the tone of what Paul is looking for. And reaching out to this church that he founded that was so divided. He was so hurt by it. But here's a, a painting that portrays the prodigal son coming home. That's what the Lord is asking all of us in his redemptive plan. But he wants that unity. To be here in the church. Let's pray. Father, we can't thank you enough for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We can't thank you enough for that verse that says, You discipline those that you love. And Father, we can't thank you enough for the power that can bring about unity and strengthen us in our faith and our walk for you. We're so grateful. We thank you for Paul's letter. Even though we are not having a division like this, Lord, may we protect it because we are wiser because of your wisdom, because of your grace. We ask in Jesus' name.